theyeshiva.net. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Since it's the week of Purim, we didn't finish the previous Maimah, but I thought we should learn this week something about Purim. So we'll learn uh, one of the Maimarim of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya on Purim. We have uh, three days this week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So turn to page 188 in Torah Er. Er, on top it says Megillus Esther, Dav Tzadik Dalad, column 3, or page 188 on the bottom of column 1. Mamash, the last two lines. Thank you very much. This Maimer focuses on a posik, on a verse in the Megillah of Esther in chapter 8. Perik Ches of the Megillah, Posik Gimel, chapter 8, verse 3, which is already closer to the end of the story. Megillah has 10 chapters, and this is from chapter 8. And let's recall the evolution of events. In chapter 7, that's where the climax happens where Esther reveals her identity during the second party, the second feast that she arranged for Achashverosh and Haman. And she points a finger to Haman saying that he is the one who plotted and schemed the absolute destruction of her and her entire nation. And at the end of that story, Haman is hung, he's executed. The next chapter... Chapter 8 is already the aftermath of Haman's death. So what's left is not Haman, but the residue of his accomplishment, of his achievements or his schemes, which is the edict that Haman had the king issue forth to allow every Jew to be Khalilah exterminated on the 13th day of Adar. So Haman is gone. The man behind it is gone, but the decree is not gone. So verse chapter 8 is a very important aftermath. Like, what? fine, Haman is gone, but that's not the end of the story. It just means that uh, the one who plotted the edict was killed, but the decree was still intact. So chapter 8 continues in that theme, and it says that that day, Achashverosh gave Esther the house of Haman, and Mordechai was also welcomed into the palace because... At this point, Esther was open about who she was, and Mordechai was a close relative of hers. And now, the Megillah continues the next phase of the story, and this is the passage where this Maimah begins with. Vatoysef Esther, vatadabalif nehamelech. Esther comes back. Vatoysef means Esther uh, added to her words, because previously she obviously spoke to the king about Haman. But now she came again to speak to the king, and she falls before his feet. She prostrates herself and she falls down on the ground before his raglayim, before the king's feet. And she weeps, she cries, and she pleads with him, to remove, to eliminate the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his machshava, his plan, his scheme, which he schemed against the Yehudim, against the Jewish people. And the Megillah continues that when Achashverosh sees Esther coming before him, falling before his feet, again he gives her the golden uh, scepter symbolizing that she should stand up before the king, 
and she does, and she asks the king to remove the edict. And what he tells her is that you could sign in my name. I'll have, I'll, I'll, I'll sign a new edict, and the new edict is that uh, the Jewish people can defend themselves. In other words, that day that was designated for the people to exterminate the Jewish people, the Jews can fight back and kill whoever tries to kill them. I can't cancel the first edict. That's impossible. It was already written and signed. There's nothing I can do about that. But he responds to Esther with a second edict, giving the Jews the right for self-defense on that designated day when those when the many will come, might come to kill them. Says the Alter Rebbe, he starts immediately with a question that uh, obviously represents a different layer of the Megillah. Vihine, just he starts off immediately. Eich shayech lefonov yizborech loyma lefnei raglov v'aloyein loydmus haguv eneguf How can you speak about Hashem and say she fell before his feet? When he has, can we say in Yigdal, he has Einloid Musaguf, he doesn't have the image of a body, the visage of a body, Guf, and he's not a Guf, he doesn't have an image of a body, and he's not a body. Obviously, this question is based on a, on a premise, a paradigm, which he doesn't discuss here. And that is, the Gemara says, and it's brought in a few Madrashim, that whenever it says in the Megillah the word Hamelech, it represents also the ultimate king, Hashem, the Melech Malche Hamlach. Even though, on a literal level, obviously Hamelech is referring to the Persian king Achashverosh, but Chazal understood that every time it says Hamelech, it's also symbolizing Hashem. In other midrashim, it says, and the Ramah brings it in his commentary Mechir Yayin on Megillah, that even where it says Achashverosh. <laughs> Not only Hamelech, even says Achashverosh, Achashverosh is Misha Acharis Vereshis Shaloi. It synthesizes three words. The end and the beginning belong to him. The one that the end and the beginning of history belong to him. Like we say every morning in Baruch Shamar, Chai La'ad V'Kayim Lanetzach. He lives eternally and endures forever. So the end and the beginning are his. Ani Rishon V'Ani Acharon. I'm in the beginning, I'm at the end. Based on this premise, based on this idea, the whole Megillah could be read on different levels. There's a layer where you read the Megillah, the physical, concrete story at a particular point in Jewish history with all of the details and the nuances and the drama that, in, that develops in the Megillah, beginning with the party and Vashti's removal from the throne, and Achashverosh's depression, and Esther's succession to royalty, and Haman's ascendance to power, and the decree, and the edict, and the feast, and another feast, and insomnia of Achashverosh, and everything that continues. That's a one level. Fascinating story, no question, which we read every year in the Meipurim. But the very same story also contains another layer and it's really true about all of Torah. You could read Torah on a level of Pshat, and a level of Emez, a level of Jewish, a level of Said, and deeper and deeper. And they're not contradictory to each other. It's different layers 
of reality, just like in every physical reality. It's not a contradiction between the fact that this is a table, and on the other hand, if I put it under a microscope, I see a whole underlying atomic structure, which is not visible to the eye. It doesn't contradict the fact that from a surface level, I'm touching a solid piece of wood, and that's what my hand can pick up. And then there are deeper layers of reality. And it's not one layer, it's deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where the human mind even has a difficulty to grasp it. You know, talk about quantum mechanics. The same is true, this is a muscle. The reason it's like this in the world is because it begins like this in the blueprint of the world. Whatever is in the house is in the blueprint of the house. A real architect in the blueprint draws every detail of every aspect of the house. There's nothing in the home that's not in the blueprint. Because if it wouldn't have been in the blueprint, it wouldn't have ended up in the home. We're not talking about an architect who does, you know, half work and you don't know why you're paying him and then you have to hire another architect. We're talking about a real architect, an authentic architect who does a good job. So every single detail that's going to be in the house exists in the architectural plans. Because the reason it exists in the house is because of the actual plans. The house is built based on the plans. So when the Medrash Rabbah says in Parshas Bereshis that the Reboiner Shaloylam also used architectural plans for the world, Istakel, it says that the, the Medrash says that the Torah, the Diftiroyis, it's the blueprint by which the world was created, or the Zoyar says, that's in Medrash, the Zoyar says, Istakel Bereisa Kuchabrichu, Istakel Bereisa Boralm. He looked into Torah and created the world almost like the contractor who follows the blueprint and based on that creates the world. So there's nothing in the world that doesn't exist in the blueprint. You just have to be able to know how to read the blueprint. If you don't know how to read the plans, you won't be able to appreciate it. But everything in the house, everything in the world, on our planet and the universe, the entire cosmos, not just our planet, all of the planets, all aspects of the universe originate in in Torah. I may have shared with you a story. They say that in the times of the Alter Rebbe and the Balatanya, Somebody brought him a map from America. This is the mid-1700s. A map of the United States of America. And they uh, showed him the map. Now, the maps that were drawn in those, during those eras were obviously different types of maps. But uh, some of you, I mean, I've seen copies of some maps from the 1700s. And uh, he looked at the map... Obviously, he lived his entire life in Russia. A little village in Russia called Lyozhna. It's a little, little, tiny, a little town in Belarus. It's called Lyozhna. That's, that's where he was born. That's where he grew up, and that's where he lived much of his life. At the end of his life, he moved to another town, Lyadi, and then he escaped Napoleon. So he looked at the map, and the Altarebbe said that there's a mistake. In the map, there's a mistake. And he pointed to an error in the map. So the person who came to him was a professor, some uh, prominent person was startled. You know, obviously, uh, it didn't make sense that this person sitting here would identify a mistake. So he went to research and research. And sometime later, they discovered that there was an error over there. So he came to ask him how he knew. So he told him that in the bays of Beratius, in the bays of Beratius, you have a picture of the planet. In the base of the letter Beratius, you have a picture of the planet. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the map was inconsistent with the picture. So you knew there was a mistake. I'm not connecting it to the story, but... Yeah. Yeah. I'm not necessarily connecting it to the story. It just triggered it in me because I read the story many years ago. As a... Uh, uh, years later, somebody sent me from the New York Times a whole story about maps of the 1700s and a particular map that had a terrible error. It was very interesting stuff. <laughs> Near California, there was a big error. And they printed a whole report about it. You know how they used to draw maps. It was just stuff. It was, when I saw that, it reminded me of the story. I don't know that the two are connected necessarily. That it was that map. What's the point of this? The point is that there's no point in the world that Torah doesn't have what to address. Because if it wouldn't be in Torah, it couldn't be in the universe. To the point is a sugyan babakama. It's a very strange sugyan Gemara. Gemara goes through slangs of people. You know, slangs, like the mundane slangs of people in the marketplaces. People say this, people say this. You know, every milieu has the expressions, the quips, the ways that people articulate themselves. The Gemara wants to know the source for this and finds the sources in Torah, which is very strange. People say it, it's an expression. But the idea is the same idea, that if it exists in the world, somewhere it has an origin in the blueprint of the world in Torah. And when Torah addresses it, it addresses it from the blueprint's perspective. In other words, from the original design, from the original plan. So you could find it in its most idealistic fashion, tracing it back to its ultimate progenitor. So you don't only get a half of the picture, but you get the full picture, which you sometimes can't get when you see only one layer of reality. And that's why the world has so many layers, because Torah has so many layers. And every layer of Torah parallels to another layer of physics. Every layer of Torah interpretation is, is, is addressing and is mirrored and reflected in another layer of examining the world. So the layer of pshat always relates to what pshat, pshat is, the literal interpretation, what you see, the most external and really basic interpretation. And that addresses, that's the architectural plans for the pshat of the world. What's the pshat of the world? Pshat of the world is what you see, is what you get. That's the pshat. Pshat is the literal meaning of the world. What you see is what you get. This is it. This is the literal meaning. You have remes of Torah addresses the remes layer of the universe, and then drash, and then soid, etc., etc. So this is true about every Pasuk Chumash. It's true about every story, every mitzvah, every law, every detail. So on this level, the whole Megillah can be read as a deeper story. There's a Gavaldik Amaisa that they say, also about the Balatanya. The Balatanya had a son. He had a few sons. He had three sons. One of them, one of his sons, is known as the Mittler Rebbe. His name was Rebdoiv Ber. And after his father's passing, the Balatanya's passing, he succeeded him. He was the second leader, the second Rebbe in the dynasty of Chabad. He's known as the Mittler Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe was the older Rebbe, and then they called him the Middle Rebbe, the Mittler Rebbe. And he was succeeded by his son-in-law, who was known as the Tzemach Tzedek, Rebbe Nachemendel of Lubavitch. So the Mittler Rebbe 
after his father's passing, Chavdala Tevis Tovkufay and Gimel, 1812, succeeded his father. And so they say a story that after his passing, after the Alter Rebbe's passing, was the next Purim, came to the time of the Megillah reading. And you know the Sostas custom in Jewish communities, still in many communities, is that the Balkari, the one who would read the Megillah, they would pay him. The Olam, the, the community, would tip him. After Megillah reading, they would tip him for the, for the Megillah reading. This was like a custom, a tradition. In many communities, they would put out a, a cup or a plate, a kaira, a bowl, and people would put in money, especially to tip the one who read the Megillah. The Alter Rebbe, used, the Alter Rebbe, the Baltanya, was a Balkaira. He used to read the Torah on Shabbos, and he would read the Torah on Yom Tif. And, uh, and also all the Yom Tovim, including Purim, he was a Balkaira, he used to read. After his passing, was Purim, and the Mittler Rebbe was there, in Shul, obviously, and somebody read the Megillah. And after the Megillah, the Mittler Rebbe gave him a huge tip, a huge amount of money that was completely not uh, consistent. Clearly, he had a lot of poverty, but it was also completely inconsistent. Like it was a very, uh, it was a, huge, a very huge sum of money, and uh, people were surprised. <laughs> Why did he feel that it warranted such a reward? So the Mittler Rebbe said, "Azasheina Maisa tedetzelt." This Balkaira told such a beautiful, fascinating story. And everybody was shocked. He wasn't a young person. He's heard the Megillah dozens and dozens of times. So they said, this is the first time you heard the story. So he said, When my father read, it was a different story. For the first time. He heard a beautiful story, very, very dramatic story. So he felt that the person deserves a great reward, an ample reward. When my father read, it was a different story. A similar thing happened once, Parshas Kisava. Parshas Kisava, you read the Teichicha. Very harsh rebukes that Moshe, with which Moshe warns the Jewish people. Teichicha. He heard the Teichicha once. The Mittler Rebbe heard the Teichicha. Again, after the, his father wasn't around, he was away. And, uh, and he got sick. <laughs> he Bosha got sick from it. That's a chinom and some hearts, and he took it so seriously, he got sick. It was a question if he could fast him kipper. Came to his father with a shaila if he could fast him kipper, because Parshish Kisavoy is before Rosh Hashanah, the month of Elul. And he didn't know if he could fast him kipper. That's how sick he got. There was a question. How serious it is. So again, they asked him, I don't understand. Every year you hear the same, the same, the same curses, the same toichich. So he said, When my father reads, I don't hear the curses. You don't hear the curses. And obviously there was a remez here. I remember once Lubavitcher Rebbe told over the story. And he said, he touched, he said, he started to cry. He said, as the tata lent, as avinu shabashamayim lent. When you hear that your father is reading it, your father in heaven, it's your father, you don't hear curses. When the tata lent, when you hear that it's your father reading, you don't hear curses. There's also a maisa, 
they say about the first Belzerov, the Sar Shalom, that when he came, Purim, he came to his Rebbe, I think it was the Apterov, ah, the Chayz of Lublin, and uh, it was Purim time, and the question is, who's going to read the Megillah? And they didn't know each other yet, and he chose him to read the Megillah, and he read the Megillah, and the Apterov came over to him and said, Yegeman, how's the Tzelt What did he mean? What he meant was, the same story can be told in many ways. It's the same words, but it can be told in many ways. This is the premise that you have to appreciate for the question. Because if not, <laughs> she fell before the feet of Achashverish. Achashverish doesn't have feet. But based on the premise, and since it's a safer of Pnimius Atayra, so it's addressing the stories from a perspective of Pnimius, of Nister. Pnimius means the inside, Nister means the concealed. Again, the deeper layer which represents... The Gemara says, HaMelech is a marshal for Hashem. And the question is, what's the marshal and what's the nimshal? The Ramban writes in Sefer Parshas Bereshus, HaToyre medaberes betachtoinim v'reimezes belyoinim. The Torah addresses the lower element of reality, but intimates the higher level of reality. The Ramemi Fanu, one of the great Kabbalists, Rabbeinu Menachem Azari of Italy, Fanu, he writes in his Sefer Asarim Amoris, the Torah is addressing the higher reality and just intimating the lower reality. Meaning, what's the mashal and the nimshal? It's not that the nimshal is the physical and the mashal is the spiritual. It's a mashal. The physical is just a mashal for the nimshal. The Torah is really addressing the spiritual, not the physical. And the truth is, the Ramban and the Ramamifanu may not be arguing. They're just addressing it from different perspectives. From one perspective, the Torah is addressing the Tachtoinim and intimating the Elyonim. And from another perspective, it's addressing the Elyonim and intimating the Tachtoinim. And then the Gemara says in Mesechus Shabbos, You never take out a Pasek from Pshat. There's always also Pshat. So if it's also addressing, or meaning not also, but primarily addressing the higher reality, what's the Lifnei Raglov before his feet? She falls down before his feet. There's no body, there's no image of a body. When you talk about Hashem, you're very careful about how to talk. What we, what we, the, 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 the famous anthropomorphisms, meaning whenever we use the image of a body, you know, yada chazaka, the arm, the arm, the feet, whatever it is, one has to understand what it means because ain't like gov, ain't like He doesn't have a body and not the image of a body, as we say in Yigdal. It will be understood by explaining first the essence of tefillah, the essence of davening. And how each person is able to daven. The name Esther is again not only the name of an individual woman who lived in a particular milieu and ended up in a particular place and is the one who is behind the Purim story. We call it Megillus Esther, because she is the great person, the heroine of the story. But Esther also represents Knesset Yisrael. Knesset Yisrael means the gathering of Yisrael, the kibbutz of Klal Yisrael. Kiyeshla Harbe Shemus. Knesset Yisrael, the Jewish people, have many names. Nikras B'Shem Chines Rochel, when Knesset Yisrael is in a state of his galus, which means in a state of revelation, 
they're identified as Rachel. What's the connection to Rachel? So here's a very deep word. The word Rachel in Lashon Kodesh in Hebrew is what? A sheep, a ewe. E-W-E, ewe, which from the sheep family. It's called a Rachel. of the expression, the Navi says, Yeshaya Rachel, Rachel, like a ewe, like a sheep, before her goizizim, her shearers, those who shear, who cut the wool off the sheep, the fleece, ne'elama. Ne'elama from the word elam remains mute, silent. There are animals you try to cut off their hair and you're going to get a brick. You'll have to be very, very careful because of their uh, rebellious nature. But Rachel, ne'elama. The sheep remain silent. Anybody ever saw how they, they cut the fleece? Kirachel. The sheep is called, she like surrenders. Now she's, she's quiet. She surrenders to it. Kirachel of She allows, she allows it to happen. What is this a symbol of spiritually speaking? See, he says, when Knesset Yisrael, when Knesset Yisrael wants and allows its life to become subsumed in its source. To become included in its source, not to be separate. It's in a state of Rachel. Rachel alam. What's the connection between the two things? Yuchlal Hachayas and Rachel alam. I assume at first glance, I mean the way I understand it is that the sheep is not rebellious, doesn't have to be autonomous and detached, and will rebel against you and run away and be stubborn. But on the contrary, the sheep is, 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 is content in this place. You have Knesset Yisrael when it's in a state of Izgalos, when its true spiritual qualities emerge. What comes out is that it's happy. It wants to be part of its source, which means together with others and together with its source. The Gamkain, there's an expression in Tehillim. No, now we're talking Rachel. He says, Knesset Yisrael has many names. There's a time we're called Rachel, there's a time we're called Esther. We'll soon get back to Esther. He started off that Knesset Yisrael is called Esther. But we have other names for Knesset Yisrael. So he's saying, Knesset Yisrael has many names. Well, Rachel and Esther are connected because they're names for Knesset Yisrael, but they represent different qualities, different characteristics. All the great women in Tanakh are all connected, but each one represents a, a unique quality, a unique characteristic. So he says, Rachel represents Knesset Yisrael when it emerges. It's fine, he can ask. Rachel represents Knesset Yisrael when, he emerges in its, when it emerges in its full glory, when it's revealed. What do we mean it's revealed? He's going to explain. Atazah. Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, preview, it's fine. Nothing wrong with a preview. Nothing wrong. He's also going to give it away. He's also going to give it away in a few moments. It's fine. That's what we're learning. Rav is going to be giving it away all week until tomorrow. We're going to have a... Yeah, Avada, Avada. Avada. Vigamke in the post Katsoin tifcha. Like the famous expression, like a sheep to the slaughter, meaning she peshetis tzavor l'shchite beratzen pashat. The animal, the sheep, is a type of animal which is very unique in this sense. That she almost like 
spreads out her tzavar, her neck, for the shechita, Beratzim Parshat with her simple will. What is this a marshal for? What is this a metaphor? So every single Jew is reflective of Rachel. That the deepest will of a Jew is to become subsumed, to become nichla. The word lehikalal always comes from the word klal. Right? Prat is the individual. Klal is the collective. The rotsen of a Jew is lehibotl. Not to remain in his or her detached ego space, but lehibotl, to become aligned, v'lehikalal, to become included, subsumed ba'ayri yizbarich, in his divine light, lemeve echad be'echad. The expression of the Zoya and Kegavna, Lemeve Echad Beechad. One should become one with one. Lemeve Echad Beechad. To become one with Echad. To become one with oneness. The truth is, there's Echad, there's oneness. That's the definition of Hashem. Hashem means Echad. Hashem Echad doesn't only mean Hashem is one, it means the definition of Hashem is Echad, oneness. To become one with Echad. There is a state of reality, a more superficial state of reality, where you become, where you don't recognize the Echad. Where you don't recognize the Echad. The person, on the contrary, is detached from the oneness, at least on a conscious level. Means when that inner Ratzon comes out, where I want to become one with oneness. I want to become part of the oneness, lihikolel, to become part of the klal, bitl to the klal. That's the rotsin in every single Jew, which is represented by the name Rachel. Kirachel ifnoi na She allows her, 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 her hair to be cut, and she, so to speak, silent, not autonomous. Kitsoin tifcha, there's this bitl of the tsoin, where the Rachel is not somebody who is defiant and rebellious and detached, but on the contrary. She surrenders to her master with a natural will. Kamashakasav, as the Pasik puts it, in Tehillim, we say it every day in Psukha de Zimra, at the end of one of the Halalukas, Yahalalu Hashem Hashem Kinizko Shmoilavada, Haidai al Eretz Vishamayim, which means Haidai is his glory, his splendor, is on the earth and on the heavens. And the earth is a reflection of his glory. As the Pasuk says, also we say, the whole of the world is filled with his covered. Glory or hide all represents an expansion of, of, his, of, of, uh, of Ziv. Of his pashtas is an expansion, and Ziv is a ray, rays of light. That the whole world and everything that's in the world, essentially, is It's like a ray of light, a ray of his light, a ray of his energy, and therefore it's completely one, completely aligned, and nullified to the source. When this state of consciousness is revealed and it's fiery, what does it reveal mean? It's in a con- person experiences this consciously with a fire, with a passion. That's when the Jew or Knesset Yisrael are named Rachel. Just like the sheep, which is not defined on the contrary, even when it comes to Shechita. 
the sheep gives its neck, as he says. Spiritually, what it means is that a person wants to be in a relationship with the ultimate source. My deepest desire is this, but when this is the desire could be suppressed, it could be concealed. When it's revealed and it's passionate, we, what does the person want? And the person wants to experience I want to be one with echad, with oneness. I want to be completely aligned with that state of unity, that state of harmony. And this is a, a matching moment. This is what you would call a matching moment. A matching moment between the oneness of reality and yourself. And within yourself, a full harmony, a complete harmony, that the mind and the body and the soul is aligned with the source of all reality. That's called in Zoyar, Lameve Echad Be'echad. But as we know, it's not always because there's complete serenity. That, I don't know if anybody here raised uh, cattle and goats and sheep, but the farmers will explain to you that goats are much more difficult to deal with. You see, huh? Uh, <laughs> they're called stubborn, they're more sly, they're more shrewd. Uh, sheep, on one level we call them, like in Yiddish, you'll call somebody a shefala, right? What's a shefala? Sheep, even in English. A sheep represents, it's meek, it's a herd animal, it surrenders easily, it's docile, huh? it follows, it's submissive. So we often use it in a derogatory, like sometimes not always in the best term, you know, you're just like a sheep, you got no... You got no spine, you just follow. You follow the herd because sheep follow. They're not a rebellious, they're not rebellious. They arouse compassion. Even their meh arouses compassion. But meh kalatsoin, meh from Parshazachid Aftaira. That's a pitosh or it's your own pitosh? Meh. But it's your pitish. You say that Shmuel heard the meh. So he wanted to know what happened. Yeah. And you see that Shaul HaMelech had mercy on the sheep. He had mercy on the sheep. The Torah, the Tanakh specifies the sheep. He wanted to bring it as a carbon. So spiritually speaking, the sheep really represents a very sweet relationship. It's not, it's meek and submissive in a negative sense. Here it's in a very, very powerful sense. Because I'm submitting to what? I'm not submitting to some external influence that wants to control me. I'm submitting myself to my true self. I'm submitting my ego to my achtos. So it's a form of submission that is very praiseworthy. It's basically like when the body submits to the brain. That's not a bad submission. It's very good to follow your brain. In other words, there is a oneness, there is an essential connection that is felt between the Jew and his or her core, and everything is aligned. Complete oneness, complete menucha. That's why sheep are also very serene and very, uh, very they arouse compassion. That's the nekudah that comes out in the sheep. Individual quality or quality of Knesset Yisrael? Oh, so it's when Knesset Yisrael, so it's, it's, it's a quality of Knesset Yisrael, but as he puts it, it's, this is Knesset Yisrael, but it's also true about every individual when he's in that state or she's in that state. On both, both on the level of Klal and on the level of Prat. 
What's the difference between the core and the ego? How do you separate them? That's a very good question. What's the difference between the core and the ego? Because the core is not egotistical. Ego, I'm referring to ego here as the acronym of easing God out. In other words, the ego in the sense of... Gaiva? Gaiva, but gaiva, that, that, it, the ego means I need to be separate because I'm, I'm looking to survive. So this is, it's a survival, it's a survival mechanism, which is what ego usually is. It's a survival mechanism because I feel threatened. You're having a conversation with somebody, right? And I have to apologize, but I'm afraid to apologize. So what do I do? I'll cover it up, I'll blame other people. What is that all? It's basically I'm trying to protect myself. I'm trying to protect my ego. And the reason I'm trying to protect my ego is not because I'm strong, it's because I'm very weak. So I need to hold on to this sense of self to be able to uh, feel that I exist. Um, anger is a very good example for this. We hold on to anger. Why? It's a survival tool. It's literally a survival tool. You know that, right? Huh? Really? Insecurity. It kills you, but you don't know that. <laughs> okay, so you know it. So <laughs> So these are different ways in which I can experience myself always separate from my own core and always separate from the ultimate source. Because that's the language of survival that I'm, a, that I'm aware of. I once read a very interesting story. It left an impact on me. For many years, the, the, when it came to ice hockey, the Soviets, the Russians, were always triumphant. It was just, nobody could beat them. In 1940, the American ice hockey team defeated the Soviets. And it was a gewaldic echidish, how it happened. There was a coach, it was a Jewish fellow, what's his name? Uh, they still call it the miracle on ice, I think it was in 1980. 1984, 1980. Not 1980? And who was the coach? Huh? Herb Brooks. Say, good, wow. This is without Google. Without Google. Herb Brooks, right? I, th- I don't know. I think 1980, they still called the miracle on ice. This is that they were into hockey then, ice hockey. They called the miracle on ice that the American team, which was fragmented, it didn't have the standing of the Soviets, this was the time of the Soviet Union, defeated them. So they interviewed one of the, I was reading one article, they interviewed one of the players. And what happened? What, what did he do? So he said, Herb Brooks did not let them go to sleep. He trained them again and again and again. And when they thought that their, you know, their legs, their feet, their legs are falling off, he said, now we're training again. And one night, he was just not letting them go. And they turned to him and they said, Coach, you know, Ad Mosai, how long is this torture going to continue? And he said, until you guys realize that the name on the front of your shirts is more important than the name on the back of your shirts. That's when I'll let you go. The name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back of the jersey. That's when I'll let you go. And that's where he got them. <laughs> he changed their paradigm. Because they came into it as fragmented people. And you can't win. 
doesn't work that way. You know, I want my thing, you want your thing. We happen to be in a team together because you can't play hockey on your own. But it's not going to work that way. It has to start the other way. There's a team. There's a team. It's not me. I want to be successful. You want to be there. Let's make it together. It's not going to work. You're not going to be able to win the Soviets. <laughs> it has to start the other way. There's a team. That team is not you and me. It's a transcendent reality. Now you were part of it and I'm a part of it. You see, it's a whole different perception of life. In marriage, you have the same, the same conflict. What's more important than the name in the front or the name in the back? Those who don't know what a jersey is, the shirt, right? The name in the front has the name of the team. The name in the back has the name of the individual. So in a marriage, you say, well, I want the benefits. You want the benefits. Well, a husband needs a wife and a wife needs a husband, at least in the old definition. So therefore, we're going to come to a house and we'll make it work. That's never, it's never going to be the ultimate success story. Because I'm busy with me, you're busy with you, and we're always busy, you know, negotiating and who's right and who's wrong. And I took out the garbage yesterday and taking the garbage tomorrow, and I bought the wine last week and I made this. <laughs> you understand? The paradigm is off. The paradigm is the name on the front is more important than the name on the back. You can't erase the name on the back because it's not going to work then. You know, if you become a... Uh, there's no, there's no Matthias, so then you're not married. You don't exist. So you'll be married to yourself. And he changed the paradigm because that's what a team is. A team means there's a team. The team has individuals. Or the other way is, no, there's individuals. But I see an opportunity, so I join the team. And it's two very different models. And those of you who are into business coaching know this is one of the greatest leaks. One of the greatest leaks in businesses, right? Because everyone has their personal interests. And you're trying to chop, you know, your piece of the malavamalka, you know, your piece of the pot. You just realize there's somebody else. So ultimately, ultimately, you may be successful to some degree, but you're undermining yourself. You're always undermining yourself. Because you never really were ready to give up that definition of self. And there's a reason you're not ready to give it up. You're scared. <laughs> if I give it up, what's left of me? I'm going to be used, I'm going to be abused, etc. It's a very powerful marshal for this concept of lemeve echad be'echad. When you speak about Knesset Yisrael. There's the experience of life in very separated terms, very fragmented terms. LMI, I'm part of a family, I'm part of a unit, I'm part of a community, I'm part of a nation. And then there's a deeper experience. The experience of echad, the experience of oneness, real oneness. And then each person plays an indispensable role in that oneness. When a person can appreciate that in a way of his galus, what he calls, his slavos, to, you want to be one with oneness. You don't want to be separate from that oneness. You really want to be able to be one with oneness. That's the state of Rachel. That's where Knesset Yisrael comes out in its full glory. But when this is not revealed, Nikrib Chines Esther. I failed to say, and they won. And they were victorious. They triumphed as a result. Avol Be'eshe'en Adav When this is not revealed, Nikrib Chines Esther, 
Knesset Yisrael or the individual Jew is called Esther Kamesha Kosov, like the Pasuk says, and Parshas Vayelech, Vanoichi Haster Aster Ponai Bayoy Mahu. And the Gemara says in Chul and Kuflamates, What's the source of Esther and Torah? It's not Stam the Balatanya put Esther with a Pasuk. The Gemara says, What's the source of Esther and Torah? This verse, I will conceal my face on that day. It's not like the world thinks. The world, when he says here the world, he means many people think that if something is not revealed, they don't have it. They don't believe in it if it's not revealed. If I'm not feeling it consciously, they think it's not here. It's not true. Never ever doubt that there is inspiration in you. Never ever doubt that the Rachel is inside of you. That there is a unique and deep, deep Ratzin and connection and desire to be one with oneness. With, with the oneness of Riyadh, the oneness of Hashem. Never ever think that just because you don't feel it and you're not consciously experiencing the passion, it's not here. He says, that's a mistake. Esther. It's in a state. Esther. This is the state of Esther. Haster, Aster, doesn't mean my face is not there. My face is there. It just means it's there in a state of concealment. And one needs to reveal it from its matzpun. Matzpun means its hiding place and its concealments, like the word tzofon, right? means hidden, it's hidden. In modern Hebrew, matzpun is a conscience. But really the word is that which is tzofun. It's, it's under you, it's inside of you. So here it means from its secret hiding place. And this is what the Shir Hashirim expresses itself. That my loved one, the groom says about his loved one, that doidi, my beloved one, is kishayshana like a rose, among thorns. When you come to a rose garden and you try to get close to the roses, you're going to get pricked by thorns. Sometimes you approach people and you get pricked. So what do you do? You run away. You fail to realize that if you go a little deeper, there's a rose there. There's a rose, a very, very soft rose that you, you need to caress, you need to protect. And the thorns are only the exterior tough layer protecting the rose. So many of us, our roses learn to grow thorns. And the people around us see the thorns. Sometimes you'll see this in young, young men and women. You try to approach them and it's like, don't get close. And if you get close, I'm going to prick you. So he says, but it's really, it's a sheshana. You have to be able to see the rose. And if you're not going to be able to see the rose, you're missing the target. You're running away from a garden of roses. You're not running away from thorns, you're running away from roses. That's what we say in the Haggadah. Yeah. And uh, if you want to appreciate the differences of Haggadahs, you know, you could go to the bookstores today, you could buy six, seven hundred Haggadahs. Rabbi Krieger, how, how many Agadas do you have in your collection? Huh? 
There's more a thousand Haggadahs. A thousand Haggadahs. And each one with a different commentary. Okay? So you could actually do your Seder a whole year. Actually, for a few years, you could do every day a Seder with a different Haggadah. And even if you do it a whole year, you only have 365 Haggadahs. And even if you do one Haggadah, you're not going to read all the commentaries. But that's how many Haggadahs there are. And some people come to their Seder with that many of Haggadahs, you know, and you feel bad for the kids, right? And uh, so if you want to appreciate Haggadahs, you go to this passage, and you'll see there's different interpretations. But it's very strange. The Russia, the rebellious kid, what does he say? What are you doing? You're wasting your time. Says the Haggadah, because he took himself out of the klal, he's denying God. What should you do? What's Hakeyashinov? How do you say it in Yiddish? In Yiddish. <laughs> huh? Smack out his teeth, knock out his teeth, blunt his teeth. Yeah. What what what's the Balagata saying here? What he Pasha wants, I should go over to one of the children and punch him in the teeth? So some people say, Yeah. I once asked this question, and somebody said, Absolutely, yes. <laughs> That's exactly what he wants. Okay. <laughs> But the truth is, it's a very, very profound uh, statement in the Haggad. It's very profound. The Russia says, He says, Because he took himself out of the Klal, he's denying God. Meaning, somebody says, I don't believe, I'm an atheist. Very, very often you have to look what's behind it. What's behind it is He doesn't feel that he has a part in the Klal. He doesn't feel that he has a place here. And he's looking to establish his identity. He needs to find himself. So how does he find himself? Everything his father says, he has to say the opposite. I become an atheist, suddenly I become a Metzius. As long as I was one of the group, I was a Shmata, a nobody. Now suddenly, I go to footsteps. I'm Rabban Shalkol Bnei Agoyla. What do I have to be? A cotton? What do I have to be? A small fish in a big pond? I can be a big fish in a big pond. Or a small pond. What, what do I have to be? I garnished? There are places if you don't have blue blood, you know. I got it. I'm not judging. I understand. But Lafisha, the, the God that says, don't, it's not so poshit. A lot of koifa be'ikir, a lot of atheism and denial is the person doesn't feel as part of the cloud. On a deeper spiritual level, it means very often in our own life, we have to deny when there's so much pain and so much trauma and so much negativity, and that's my only way I could survive, which is basically what anger does. It creates a new type of reality in which I could live, blaming you for all of my issues, because I don't want to face the real pain of separateness. Generally in life, not always, but generally anger is a secondary emotion, meaning it's not the ultimate authentic emotion. Behind the anger, there's usually something else. Not always, but when you're very, very angry, take a deep breath and ask what is behind it. There's something behind it. And this is a survival tool, a skill, so to speak, that I go into in order to be able to carve out some space for me and live separate from you. But probably the pain of separation is very deep, and it's so deep that I have to become angry. So very often the kafa be'ikir is why? 
because I can't make peace with the Klal, my own Klal, my own Echad, and the Echad of the world. Va'af hata, what do you have to do? Hakayas shinov. You have to blunt his teeth. Because the bark is much bigger than the bite. What you're afraid is, he's going to bite you and he has very sharp teeth. Hakayas shinov. Blunt the teeth, smoothen out the teeth. In other words, don't get affected by the teeth. Go beyond it. Hakayas shinov. The Shinayim seem very dangerous. I once read that there was a museum and uh, they had a picture, a painting of a dog barking. And it was so real, anybody who came in ran away. Because it didn't look like art. It literally looked like a, a, bark, a, a dog barking. To be able to stay there, you have to remember, it's art. It's not a dog barking. Sometimes when somebody barks with these teeth, you have to see it as art. <laughs> I don't mean it in a cynical way. I mean, you have to be able not to run away. You have to be able to see what's art. Art means there's a neshama here. There's a soul behind it. Don't run away. If you can get behind the teeth, you'll see a lot of roses. The Vilna Gaon writes that Shinov is 366. The word Russia is uh, 570. If you shinov, if you subtract three hundred and sixty-six shinov from five seventy, from five seventy, what do you end up with, Mr. Mathematician? So you end up with tzaddik. Hakayas <laughs> shinov means if you could take away the shinov, if you could take away the teeth, and you could see beyond the teeth, beyond the sharp. Edge, you know, what is it called? The sharp edge, right? If you can get, what's the expression? Uh, uh, yeah, 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 tzaddik, yeah. When you take away Shinov from Russia, the Russia becomes a tzaddik. What's the, that's the vart. The shoshana is bein hachuchim. The rose is among the thorns. So the fact that there's thorns doesn't mean there's no rose. So sometimes you look at yourself and you say, I don't feel it, it means I don't have it. He says, it's one of the biggest mistakes in life. That because you don't feel it, you don't have it. That's not true. You want to feel it, but you can't allow what you're feeling at this moment to become the parameter of what you have and what you don't have. Your real value is sometimes, your real values are not translated into conscious emotions. As we spoke last week at length, between Seichel and Midas is a big symptom. It's not so easy always to feel everything. So he says, The thorns block and conceal the rose. And all of the concepts of the world and the deeds of Olam Haza where a person does it with his entire heart and his entire soul, in other words, he completely immerses himself. In Maisa Olam Haza, that that lack the connection with godliness are often the thorns. They're called thorns because they block this component. The person can't feel how powerful and how passionate and how fiery this inner Rachel is, and that's when he's called Esther. Ubchines Esther Hanal he misoteres bayoimahu commercial cause of anoichi Esther Esther pone bayoimahu, and this Esther. Haster, Aster, Panai, it's concealed by Yoimahu. On that day. By Yoimahu on that day. 
In other words, in addition to the Hester, the Pasuk emphasizes by Yoimahu, it's that day. Vahavin, and understand what I'm saying. Vahavin. Vahavin. Umfashte, understand what I'm saying. Understand what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. We're going to learn tomorrow. We're going to learn on Wednesday also. Thursday night in Vilchovitz, in the Vizhnitz Hall, Vilchovitz at 9.30. going to be a big Purim Fabreng and everybody is invited. You and your friends and your family. Everybody have a wonderful day and a lot of Hatzlacha. Sign the Pchin of Rachel and sign the Pchin of Esther. Yaakov wants to marry Rachel, but he ends up marrying Leah. Yeah. <laughs> Hakei Shinov, it's in the Belzer Haggadah I saw, right? R- Russia. He says, Russia, Hakei Shinov, you have to take the Shin out of the Russia, out of the Ra, you have to take the Shin. It says in Zoya that Shin is Ois Emes, it has the three crowns of Avram, Mitzvah, and Yaakov, right? So you have to. So on the outside, he looks like Ra, evil, but on the inside, there's a Shin. And you have to extract Hakei Shinov, Hakarois. Cha- Chisel out. Take out the shin, which is the three ovus, his connection to the ovus. It's an ice emus. And then the ra will fall away also, right? Yeah, well, I saw, I saw. It's in the Belza Haggadah. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.